Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Welcome to season four of the Undermine podcast by Osiris Media. I'm Tom Marshall, your host of these proceedings. We are in the middle, finally, of our season at episode 24, a season where we're exploring fish in the 90s. We're enjoying going back to visit some epic shows of the early 90s as we draw closer to our goal, the famous Fall 97 tour. Today, our show is August 10th, 1997 in Noblesville, Indiana, a venue known by all deadheads and fishheads as Deer Creek. And to help me explore one of the final shows before we're technically in the fall of 97, the amiable, delectable CEO of Osiris and my co-host, RJB. <laughs> hey, Tom. Um, so we are uh, talking today about my my first and only trip to Deer Creek um, in my life. I'm from Ohio, so I would have expected to be there more, but... I've only been there once and I came away from the show and the next night I went to both of them um, with mixed feelings, if you can believe that. So over time, that's changed a little bit, but we, there's a lot to talk about. Um, you know, this uh, A1097 show is filled with uh, interesting and kind of kind of strange, um, strange music. And there is a an epic uh, quote from a journalist about this show, which kind of brings everything Brings everything full circle, which we'll talk with our guest about in a minute. We have the perfect guest for this show. But but first, if you're enjoying what we're doing on the show, please consider supporting our new Osiris Premium offering. You can join for just a few bucks a month. You'll get bonus episodes of HF Pod and Undermine, add free episodes, access to the full archival under the scales catalog, discounts on merch, meet and greets, AMAs, and more. Check out OsirisPod.com slash premium or click on the link in the show notes. And thanks for supporting us. Uh, Tom, who do we have to talk to today? RJ, I am so pleased to announce that our guest today is the esteemed author, blogger, scientist, sports writer, music expert, 
former guest on Undermine, and also, this is the surprise, an Osiris podcaster himself, Rob Mitchum. Rob co-hosts the famous and wonderful Grateful Dead podcast, 36, uh, 36 from the Vault on Osiris. And he's written for Relics, Pitchfork, and uh, quite relevant to us, actually, he's written about every single fish show on its 25th anniversary since 1993 in a blog called Fish Essays. Look up um, Rob Mitchum Fish and you'll find it. Let's get Rob out of the waiting room because he's running out of air in that tiny compartment. Let's see if he's uh, survived his stint in the waiting room. He's alive. He's alive. <laughs> How's it going, fellas? Uh, hi, Rob. Welcome back to Undermine. Um, how are you? And let's start you. Let's start you off with a softball. When did you start seeing Fish, and when did you realize they were the best live band ever? Oh, all right. Yeah. So my first show was August tenth, nineteen ninety six. So uh, exactly a year before this show, uh, and this show might be the one that uh, convinced me that this is the band I was going to see. You know. Uh, an unreasonable amount of times over the course of my life. <laughs> yep. Yep. Rob, do you, um, do you have memories of Deer Creek? Like aside from, aside from these shows, like when you were growing up, cause I grew up in the Midwest too, but I don't, I was in Ohio and I don't really remember the like talk about Deer Creek. Maybe I was too young. I would like to, to know about the, you know, the dead kind of legacy there. Like, did you know about it before you went um, to your first show? I don't think I did separate from the fact that it was, you know, a already by the time I got there, this is the first show I ever saw at Deer Creek, uh, August 10th, 97. Um, I knew it as a Grateful Dead venue and a fish venue. And that was about it. Uh, I was, you know, really impressed by it when I went to this show and I went 97, 98 and 99. And uh, it for people who have been there i guess that's sort of recently or in the 3.0 era it was a lot different in the 90s it really felt like it was in the middle of nowhere in the middle of a cornfield with camping all around and it's become kind of a suburban area uh but i i really like thought it was a cool unique vibe when i got there and was charmed by it and of course you know went back for for three runs in a row in the 90s Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna get into fish, and we're gonna talk a lot about this show in the the muck of summer summer nineteen ninety seven. That's the way I feel about it. Um, mm -hmm. But we're gonna we're gonna make our way through it. But first, just give us a quick quick background on your sort of journalistic career and how that morphed into relationship and a podcast with our friend Stephen Hyden. Sure. So uh, I think the first music I ever wrote about was really fish. I was on the old rec music fish news group and I saw, you know, people like our friend Charlie Dirksen and others uh, writing about uh, show by song by song reviews of all these uh, shows that they were attending. So I started writing those two and I started going to fish shows, was dabbling in music writing uh, all through college and grad school, hooked up with a site called Pitchfork when it was a little tiny thing. And then it grew into this like massive music conglomerate. Uh, and suddenly people started taking me seriously as a writer. Uh, so I have never done it, music writing, like full, full time. I'm a science writer full time. Uh, but I've been writing about music, uh, album reviews, concert reviews, interviews and things for, wow, 20 years now. Uh, eventually I met Steve. Uh, Steve actually came to me and said, hey, I'm thinking about getting into fish. Uh, do you have any recommendations? And like most fans, uh, I had hours and hours of recommendations. I 
wrote a primer and I sent it to him. Uh, he followed the primer, wrote an article for Grantland at the time uh, and got totally hooked. So we started going to fish shows together. Uh, eventually it was at an Alpine show in 2019 uh, where he said, hey, we should do a podcast, but we should do it about uh, the Grateful Dead Dick's Pick series. So we came up with the idea for 36 from the vaults, found a home here on Osiris, uh, and the rest is history, I guess. Uh, we uh, completed the journey, might have some more coming up soon. Uh, but yeah, it's been great and it's been a lot of fun. I appreciate uh, you guys giving us a home. So at a fish show, you decided to do a dead podcast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we got to go to a dead and company show this summer and decide yeah. to do a fish podcast. <laughs> That'd be cool if RJ and I decided to do our fish podcast at a, at a dead show, but uh, um, back to the world of fish exclusively now. Um, so currently today we're, we're in October. So that means that the 25th anniversary of the show that we're discussing today, a 97 already came and went, which means you've written about it in your fish essays blog. Um, but more importantly, you were there. Um, can you tell us a little about the scene, but also what fish was up to in that phase of their career? Yeah. So, uh, I am a terrible person about memories for fish shows. Like <laughs> it's, it's not a drug thing at all. Like I just have a bad memory in general, except for like the music on the stage. Uh, but as I was saying, like Deer Creek really struck me as such a unique venue and kind of a creepy venue in a lot of ways. And I, tr I tried to write about this in my essay that like, by being so isolated, uh, and in the cornfield and really dark when you got out of the show, uh, it just had this like sort of, you know, subtly evil vibe uh, going on. And this is the show where it really like permeated. I think Fish in 95 and 96 at Deer Creek played very strong, but very typical shows. Uh, and here's where we finally got sort of dark evil fish in this dark setting in Indiana. Uh, yeah, so it's it's an interesting show, like, you know, in your road to fall 97, uh, this show doesn't really fit. It doesn't really fit the narrative of where Fish was going in 1997. And Summer 97 is kind of like that. Like it starts out like a preview of Fall 97 and then kind of gets off on a side path. Yeah. Uh, and I think this show is like the most interesting side path they went on, but it doesn't really fit like, hey, they're becoming this, you know, cow funk maximalist arena rock band uh, that they would become in just a few months. This is kind of like uh, a really weird, dark side alley that they went down on that way. <laughs> I really identify with what you said about corn corn and, and cornfields being sort of ominous and scary because um, I mean, the, the, you called your review of it children of the corn and uh that movie struck me but also just growing up in new jersey in basically an agrarian area um and corn gets to be eight feet so when you're in a cornfield you don't see anything and weird you know things have an opportunity to sneak up on you if they're going to <laughs> um but you uh so you had an ominous feeling and 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 you mentioned something about that the deadhead riots of 1995 also happened there. And I was wondering for those of us, including me, unfamiliar with that, what the heck was that all about? Right. Yeah. So 7 to 95, I believe it's towards the end of the, the dead's last tour. Uh, they had had troubles with gate crashers that whole summer. I think there was a big gate uh, crashing incident in Vermont as well. Uh, but Deer Creek is where, uh, well, first of all, there were death threats against Jerry before the show. So mm. that was not great. And then uh, when the show started, uh, the fans uh, ran up the hill at the back of Deer Creek and took down the fence at the back of the lawn and just started pouring in. Uh, the, the dead saw this and kept playing, uh, but then they ended up canceling the next show. Uh, if you get a chance uh, on the archive.org dead collection, 
there is a recording from the band's in-ear monitors. So they were talking to each other during mm. that set. And it's a really fascinating audio document where you can hear the dead reacting in real time to the fans coming over the wall uh, and all the like negative vibes going on around that and the death threat and everything else. It's kind of like the sad ending to the dead story in a little way, like a week before the final actual final show. So I wrote essay about the Sugarbush show that Fish was playing that same day and about how that was an amazing show and kind of like, you know, there's a lot of first fish festivals before Clifford Ball, but Sugarbush that weekend seems like that was one of uh, sort of the big gatherings of fish fans. And by all accounts, there were gate crashers at that too, but it was very good vibes and everybody was very happy and they were great shows. And just to kind of compare and contrast like where these two scenes were going at that time. So I think, you know, Deer Creek, maybe it's forgotten a little bit now by the younger fans, but Deer Creek had this kind of like negative connotation in the jam world, uh, thanks to those, the the dead incidents in 95. It's good to hear that Fish has like friendly, uh, good vibe gate crashers instead of like <laughs> bad vibe <laughs> gate crashers. Um, RJ, if you agree, I think might t- right now might be a good time to take a break and listen to some words from our sponsors. I think that's a good idea. All right. We'll be right back. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about one of our great partners, DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. If you're a musician and looking to get your music out there, DistroKid is the way to go. DistroKid is available for iOS and Android and is now available in Apple's App Store and the Google Play Store. More than a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all other major streaming services. And with DistroKid, you can upload new releases, see your financial progress, get notified when you've earned royalties, withdraw money from the app, view and share links, check your streaming stats, and a whole lot more. DistroKid has more features than any other music distributor. Check them out today. Go to distrokid.com, that's distrokid with a capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine for a special offer only for our listeners. That's distrokid, capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine. Thanks, distrokid. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little... A little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work, but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics... Um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. And we are back. Rob, you um, write in your essay um, about the first set that 
gin and disease, both strong type one for set jams, but there's also kind of a mellow spell. And I feel like this, this was my first um, and only Deer Creek show that, that I saw and uh, this and the next night, but um, I just thought it was like, well, we can get into the weirdness later, but um, it's sort of a standard kind of first set. Um, and like you said, you wrote that uh, they kind of lull the crowd into complacency before one of the most diabolical melts ever, um, one of the best jams I've ever witnessed in person. So tell us a little bit about that and and the and the first set from your perspective. Yeah, I think uh, people know this show mainly, I think, for the second set because it's a four song second set. Uh, if you count Rocco William as an actual song, which is debatable, <laughs> um, but it's uh, like it, it, it has one of these classic, very jammy second sets. Uh, but the first set, I think, is maybe even better uh, because it has really unique versions of melts of really unique hood at the end. Uh, this melt is just like if you like evil, angry, aggressive, split open and melt. Uh, this is, uh, you know, premium version of that. Uh, if you like the band King Crimson, this is a great version for you to check out because uh, it is officially notated as teasing a King Crimson song, Lark's Tongue and Aspic Part 2, I believe. I think it's kind of an approximate tease, like an approximate jam on that song, but it is super frippy, super King Crimson-y. Uh, and just being like a relentless like effects attack <laughs> from from Trey. Actually, I was trying to remember, it must have been nighttime by this point, but it's pretty early in the show for a jam that goes this deep and is this dark. Uh, and it's just like, like I said, it's not the happy party punk of Fish Fall 97. Uh, it is like a really, really like horror movie attack on, on the crowd. Uh, <laughs> builds to a, a beautiful ending, too. I mean, it's got this crazy King Crimson part. It's got a beautiful sort of spacey passage. It goes back into melt like it's closing up. And then out of nowhere, Trey is like, I'm going to play uh, Third Stone from the Sun over the split open and melt rhythm. And they, it's like one of those moments where the rest of the band, like they get it immediately and are right there with them. So it's it's almost like a mashup at the end between yeah. those two songs. It works so perfectly. Uh, so yeah, just like a 20 minute melt plopped in the middle of this set, which is, you know, otherwise a fairly chill set. Like it's got yeah. a lot of, you know, the newer ballads and shorter songs and things. And then this real, you know, slice of horror in the middle. Tom, Tom, have we um, talked on this season yet about King Crimson? And and I know that you, that that was one of the bands that that you guys were listening to back in the day, right? Yeah, I believe we talked about it. Um, I'm not positive because we're sort of doing some of the recordings for these um, shows out of order. I'm not positive if it's come out yet, but um, yeah, we talked about the influence of of like um, it was for the Halloween show in 96 um oh yeah so, yeah, yeah we yeah. probably already did yeah. talk about it. um how like adrian Ballou was uh you know really influential guitars for trey and some of those patterns and stuff 
he flipped out and and he learned like them verbatim, you know, and how he made how Adrian Ballou made those noises in uh, Born, Born Under Punches that I was insisting to Trey was, uh, you know, like probably a synthesizer. And Trey was like, no, no, he's just doing it with his guitar. And he and he did it to his, with his guitar to prove it and that kind of thing. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Rob, I got to say the the set closing hood is um, it's the second hood that I saw and, and my favorite song to see live after Tweezer. And maybe this is why I was going back to it. There's something in there with Mike has done this a lot recently in, in some jams where Mike's kind of like pushing a little bit of a like a minor minor notes is like creates a little bit of emotional tension. And then there's this release. Um, it's just a I feel like it might be a little bit of an overshadowed version just because there's so much else going on in this show. But it's a really it's really good. Yeah, it's a really unique version. I got to credit Scotty Bernstein for identifying the actual musical thing that happens here because I'm like clueless about that stuff. But uh, he wrote an essay for Jam Bass where he talked about this hood and said, Mike changes from D-A-G to B-A-G in the middle of the hood jam, uh, which oh, so it's this, not minor. It's just like a different, it's a key change. Yeah. But it sounds minor to my uneducated ears. Uh, it gives us the, the, the hood jam, this kind of like melancholy feel that you don't normally get from hood, which is, you know, sort of this build euphoric release. It, it, it it's really cool. Like I think it is just like a really cool, unique hood. this a lot where he'll change it or Trey will do this too where they'll change it just a little bit to add a little bit of tension and then go back to the actual chord progression and release it but they don't do it right away they stay in that new chord progression for for several minutes they go back and then they come back to the bag instead of the dag uh it just works really well to make a a, a cool hood that doesn't sound like a lot of hoods and you're right like it gets overshadowed because of these other big jams um before we go to those big jams, I do want to say the show also has one of the best set break banters of any fish show. And I hope people stick around for that. Yeah, this is the, yeah, we'll yeah. be back in exactly 15 minutes, uh, set break banter, uh, which I can repeat verbatim in the exact like rhythm that Trey says it. I've heard it so many times. I love Let's it. hear it. Let's hear it. It's a, we'll be back in exactly 15 minutes. Don't forget to set your watches <laughs> and don't get caught in the bathroom. <laughs> it's great. I, he's done that little spiel so many times, but never better than that, in my opinion. That's amazing. And I want to I want to mention that um, the split up in a mail from set one was released on Live Bay 12, so you can hear a soundboard version. One of the things about this summer is like a lot of these shows just don't, the sound quality isn't, isn't great, um, which, you know, is unfortunate because this, this, this hood and, and some of the stuff that happens here, you know, it deserves the, the, the treatment, the soundboard treatment. Um, so Rob, I, I feel like summer 97 is a little bit like summer 95 and that it's like kind of confusing at moments and, and just, just weird. It just gets out there, especially compared to the fall of, of both of those years. But, um, I remember being like very confused by this set, 
when I was, you know, I was only 18. So I didn't really know what was going on, but there's some really cool moments, but it's just a wild set. And you wrote, um, the band is 40 plus minutes into the second set before they play a fish song. And even then it's a bizarre instrument switching rock William and it's soul us performance. Um, do you, do you enjoy listening to this set? Like, do you like going back to it and, and tell us about kind of how it unfolds for you? I think I like the first set a little better than the second set in this case, just because the Melton Hood are so good. Uh, but this is a great set and a great example of you like fish at its extremes. Uh, we haven't talked about the review yet. I imagine we'll talk about the newspaper review. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> about this show. Um, but yeah, it, it's one of those sets where it really feels to me like they came out with the intention to jam, like no matter what. I don't know how often this happens. Tom would know better than me. Uh, but it seems like they're going to, they, they had planned, like, we're going to open with cities uh, and we're just going to take it out and we're going to see where, where it goes. Uh, and where it goes is good times, bad times, which is very unusual in the middle of a set after about 25 minutes of Cities Jam. bad times too and then they get on the theremin and then they do a rotation and then they do rock william and then they do a very un unusual bowie so it is just like like pushing the limits of what fish can get away with in concert which is exactly what the newspaper review hated about it and exactly what i as an 18 year old loved about it and what i think a lot of fish fans love about it uh because it's just so like perverse like that they would be in front of twenty five thousand people uh a giant amphitheater in the middle of nowhere and they would play you know two covers like a song about their friends where they're playing the wrong instruments like it's you know it's just like no other band could could do this or would do this. No, uh, but I can totally see like an 18 year old RJ getting confused by it. And we've, we've talked about a few shows where, you know, you kind of walk away or people have walked away or even have like, you know, God forbid brought one of their best friends after saying how incredible fish is uh, and to a first show like this where people walk away confused, like, what just happened to me? And um, I think what you're ref referring to, and we've been dancing around it a little bit, the infamous um, newspaper review that this is the show that inspired the famous fish could urinate in its fans' ears and tell them its music quote, right? right. Who, who said that? And did you agree? And do you now looking back 25 years later? Well, it's a fellow Osiris family member, Mark Allen, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which is yeah. a hilarious, like, postscript to this story that he ended up being on, uh, you know, the, the the music podcast family around Fish. <laughs> well, and I, I, before you say that, I, I just want to just quickly, um, the Tapes Archive, which is the show that Mark Allen's interview tapes are are, are the source for this. And uh, one of the episodes that that they put out in 2019 was an interview with Trey from 93. And um, it's a really interesting listen. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. But there's like, a, you know, he's sort of a 
it's just such a different kind of conversation in 1993. And then, and then Mark Allen, you know, sees them in 97 and, and writes this, uh, this article for the Indianapolis star. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you can find it. I have it on my fish crit Twitter account. I can repost it when this article comes out. So everybody can see it like a scan of the review and you know, just the pissing in their fans ears part is pretty bad, but the whole thing is just a total hit job on fish. And it's like, it's fascinating because I don't disagree with them. There's a lot of things he says where that he says it as a negative and I would agree with them and say it was a positive. (laughs) Um, But part of it is like, Fish in 97, part of why the 97 summer tour is so up and down, I think, is because they were in this, like, dramatic transformation, this deconstruction of what it means to be fish. So, you know, he clearly was a fan, and that interview from 93, like, really shows it, that he knew what fish was about, and he liked what fish was doing in the early 90s. Uh, But four years later, fish is trying to reinvent themselves and become a totally different band. And they're doing it on, you know, some of the biggest stages in the country. Uh, And so for a reporter who maybe isn't following every move of fish, uh, like people were even online back then in the 90s, uh, it would be totally baffling to see them doing this, to see them coming up and doing like Spinal Tap Jazz Odyssey (laughs) to people's ears uh, instead of, you know, ripping through songs like they were doing in the early 90s. Uh, so it's, we know that this story ended with some of the best fish music. Like, I mean, partially due to my age, 97 through 99 is my favorite era of fish. And they had to do shows like this to get to that point because they had to test the outer limits of what they could do on stage to maybe bring it back 10% and satisfy both, you know, the really hardcore fish heads and the like outsiders who were just coming in and gawking at it. Uh, so that's what's so interesting about this show and why it's so great that you included it on the path to 97 because like a show like this kind of has to happen every once in a while uh, for fish to just test its boundaries and then figure out, you know, where is the middle ground that we're happy with where we can still be challenging ourselves, but also still keeping the fans happy. I, I love mean, the, I love that perspective that this is a challenge show, right? That this is the one that's on the kind of the outer limits where where you don't become fish uh without you know experiencing the outer boundary i I love that that's great we have a couple in this season that have been described that way but this one in particular uh the second set for sure is that and i will say that like while it doesn't really totally match up with fall 97 it does match up very well with some of the like europe 97 spring and summer shows that i think you're talking about as well uh and they like used europe that year to really just like throw out all the rules and be as weird as they wanted to be and they were doing that in clubs with like 500 people uh so this is part of the thrill of this show is that they were doing that same thing in front of 25,000 people instead and that's like it's really fun to hear and was you know, amazing new experience. If you knew the context, I guess, or some of the context. I think, I think it's so strange because the summer tour, you know, this is uh, one of our two stops on, on the summer tour, but you know, you, the Virginia beach, the Walnut Creek, there, the even shoreline and the gorge, like there's, there's a lot of really good shows with strong playing. And then of course, on to, on to, to the great one. Um, and then here you get this, the fourth and last rotation jam, which, you know, between, like you said, the theremin solo and the rotation jam and rock William, that's like 20 minutes of the second set. That's basically them just fucking around. And I mean, it's just so interesting to me that this, I don't know why Deer Creek or why that night. And that's always the question. Like, why, why does something happen at a particular show? And it might've just been like, like you guys said, like, it's just like, it was a, 
it was a it could have been like a breather, you know, like they were like, all right, let's just like take the pressure off or something else might have happened. I mean, it's it's a it's strange to think about. I don't know if you have any theories about why this particular show ended up so bizarre, but um, there's probably no way to tell. I mean, I've always I've speculated that maybe there was some intraband tension for the show. I mean, the first the first set, not so much, but the second set, that that run you talk about with the theremin solo and the rotation jam and uh, Rock William and Bowie. Um, the rotation jam is funny because Fish doesn't want to rotate. Like <laughs> Fishman John doesn't want to rotate. Yeah, they start yeah. rotating and he stays on the drums and eventually Trey goes over and starts playing the drums and Fishman does not leave. And so it's really more of like a drums jam that just happens to have Mike on piano and Paige on bass. <laughs> a true rotation jam. Uh, and so then they do Rock of William. When they go back to Bowie, this is, I don't think it's the longest Bowie intro ever, but it's got to be up there. It's about eight minutes long. Yeah. And it is practically a, a DDL, a digital delay loop jam, just without the rest of the band dropping out. And it almost feels like Trey is punishing Fishman for not leaving the drum set because he's got to do that hi-hat for like eight minutes, which must be so frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> to Fishman, I have to just do that for so long. Uh, so there's a weird tension in this set too that I think is another thing that just makes it a special show. I mean, you, I don't want my boys to fight. <laughs> it's like seeing your parents fight. Uh, but at the same time, Part of the like dark, evil, unsettling uh, nature of the show, I think maybe I might be speculating, but might come from like the band clashing a little bit, uh, but in a, you know, at least in a productive and creative way. That's a great theory and only could come from someone who's seen a lot of shows and understands the dynamics, um, as opposed to, uh, you know, a a journalist dropping in who happened to drop in on this show, you know, of all shows, didn't understand the context or anything, which is and, and then comes out with that famous quote. Well, um, Rob, uh, thank you so much. I think that's it for us today. Uh, anything else, RJ? Or are we are we calling it? Well, I just want to know. Um, I just want to know if. Rob, do you have anything else on like what the, I guess, legacy or importance of this, of this show is? I mean, we've sort of talked about it just being like, like you said, kind of pushing the limits and figuring out what they could get away with. Is there anything else that you would say about how this show stacks up or, or just looking back at it 25 years later? Yeah. I mean, it, it seemed like this was a sleeper show for a long time. Like, I don't know that it was particularly popular. And you mentioned earlier that the tape, the audience tape is not great of this show. And so I think that had something to do with it. People seem to be catching on now though. And I'm glad it's included in this series because if people hadn't heard it now, they can hear it. Um, I do think like, I mean, there's always shows like this, like in, in for the rest of the nineties, you get these shows that are totally bizarre and, you know, even into the subsequent eras. Um, but yeah, as far as its legacy, I do think it's what we were talking about earlier, just as like exploring the outer boundaries of what they could do, uh, only to, to take a step back. So it was uh, summer 97 in a lot of ways, I think, was like the last sort of cleansing before they could really streamline all the new things, all the new tricks they had learned uh, for fall 97. And when everything finally came together, I mean, charting show by show, like I've been doing on the essay project has really shown that like fall 97 didn't just happen. Like this was something they had been working on for a year. Uh, and some shows, they really get it. Some in February or in uh, July, early July, all the Amsterdam shows. If you just listen to the Amsterdam box, you're like, Oh, they had it all figured out by early 97. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it took a long time and all the fish transformations take a long time. So this is a good show to, to sort of indicate like, you know, 
the evolution is not smooth. It's a zigzag. And yeah, the, there were there were better things around the corner. Well, or, I want to perfect. I wanted to sorry, Tom. I just want to say one more thing, which yeah. is that um Rob will be continuing, I assume, Rob, your your 25-year uh, anniversary write-ups, which will come out on the same day that our fall 97 shows come out. So we need to figure out are you gonna are you Maybe we should try to, uh, we've already recorded that. I was going to say, maybe we should wait to read your essays before we record <laughs> and just steal everything from you. But I guess people have to read your essay and then listen to the podcast and then listen back to the show. That seems like a good a good order. We, we won't be able to use it as research, unfortunately. It'll be a full-time <laughs> job for everybody to do their Fall 97 list exactly. of long projects. Yeah, exactly. no, I'm looking forward to the competition. It'll be nice. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a little nervous about writing about this tour and coming up with something new to say, but uh, somehow it always happens. So I'll, I'll just I look forward keep doing to what it. I'm doing. Looking forward to it for sure. And I'm looking forward to, I'm about to get in the car for about an hour. Uh, I'm going to put on this melt and then I'm going to listen to um, Lark's Tongues. But specifically, I think the song that maybe people were talking about was Easy Money on Lark's Tongues. So I'm going to listen to that and see if that was the one where where I feel that that part of it was taken from or, or that jam comes from. Anyway, um, that's it. Uh, thank you, Rob Mitchum. Thank you to all listeners and the Osiris team. And I want to give a quick shout out to Cash or Trade, the world's only social network where fans buy, sell, and trade tickets at face value. Check them out at cashortrade.org. Remember to review and subscribe wherever you listen or watch. And goodbye. And remember to continue to blaze onward. Thank you. Osiris. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. Get down! The wrath of the buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.